Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Lawrence Hurley. Lawrence is a legal affairs journalist based in Washington who currently covers the Supreme Court and related issues for Reuters. Last year, in 2021, he was part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize for Shielded, a series showing how the legal doctrine of qualified immunity protects cops facing excessive force claims. I am so happy to be able to bring him on to Passing Judgment and have a conversation about all things Supreme Court and maybe other things. So, Lawrence, thank you for Passing Judgment with us. Happy to join you. You've been covering the Supreme Court for quite a while now, and I think our listeners probably hear some version of this is the most conservative court we've had in 100 years, or this court is just so conservative by a six to three margin. And I'm wondering if you can help situate us and situate the listeners for a minute in terms of, is that true? Is this the most conservative court we've seen in almost a century? And to start really broadly, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because um, it's easy for people who are in the kind of political space to think that, you know, people on the left are exaggerating if they say, the Supreme Court's extremely conservative, and they might say that, well, people on the left always say that the Supreme Court's conservative, so, you know, they're kind of exaggerating. But, you know, the fact is the court has changed, and that's shown in what the court does. And as a reporter, that's what we look at. We don't just think about who's on the court, but like what the court's actually doing, you know, where the rubber hits the road. And that's, and, and of course, the court has changed because there's different justices on the court, including three that were just appointed by President Trump. And obviously, Justice Anthony Kennedy used to be the swing vote kind of on the court retiring. And the, even the chief justice, who is a conservative, but a little bit more interested in compromise or incremental decisions, is now kind of out of the picture because there are now five justices to his right. And where we've seen that manifest itself is in the cases the court is taking up and the cases they're currently hearing, some of the cases they've already decided. And the, obviously the biggest one right now is the abortion case where they're thinking about whether to overturn Roe v. Wade. Other cases where they're talking about expanding gun rights and various rulings during the pandemic that favored uh, religious rights. And all these things combined, you know, tell us something about where the court's heading uh, in addition to some of the cases they've agreed to take up recently, including the case that could end affirmative action in college admissions and you know, a couple of cases they've taken up on, on big regulatory issues involving environmental laws. Yeah, I want to talk through all of those issues with you. And I want to bring up something else that I think people maybe are confused about or wonder about when they're thinking about the Supreme Court, which is the difference in conservative legal ideology versus conservative political ideology and where those two kind of intertwine. And I'm wondering if you see in this court, a court that's not just maybe conservative legally speaking, but we hear more about this court being political. Is that something that you see from your vantage point of covering the court? Is it too soon to tell because we just have this current court really have not had it for that long. I think it's really hard to tell that. And I think it's really hard to measure it in any kind of data that you could actually use to show whether or not the court is more partisan now than it used to be, which is, you know, what people keep on saying. It's like, well, how do you measure 
whether a court is more partisan, you just look at like the cases in which it was the Republicans against the Democrats, or do you include all kinds of other cases where you know the Republicans and the Democrats aren't even involved, which is most cases. And I think it's also interesting if you look at the Trump administration and the cases that came up there, like if you're going to say the court is partisan, then you would assume that they would have ruled in favor of Trump all the time. But in fact, the court didn't do that. And the court also has routinely rejected most of Trump's kind of individual claims that he's brought, whether it's trying to overturn the election or trying to withhold the documents from the January 6th committee. Uh, or withholding his financial records from the investigation in New York by the prosecutor there, you know, you'd think like maybe a partisan court would have ruled in favor of Trump on those cases, especially as there's three justices on the court now who are appointed by him. So that kind of maybe undercuts that argument a little bit. But, you know, there are clearly areas where the ideologies of conservative justices happen to <laughs> jibe with what Republican politicians want, which is exactly the same as, you know, the liberal justice's ideologies jive with what Democrats want, and that's why people care about who's on the Supreme Court in the first place. And, uh, you know, you certainly see that in some of these cases on social issues and also on these attacks on the administrative state, trying to reduce the power of federal agencies and sometimes even kind of curb the ability of Congress to... Uh, pass expansive laws, which is something that could come up more in the future. And I think a big overlooked area, because people tend to think, oh, I want to talk about religious rights, I want to talk about gay rights, I want to talk about abortion, but the power of the administrative state is obviously a huge thing, and I and I want to get to that. And before we do, I wanted to get your take on some breaking legal news, which is that, or maybe breaking to us, which is this idea of justices really playing the part of politicians outside of the courtroom. And specifically, I'm talking about Justice Neil Gorsuch, we just found out, is giving a speech to the Federalist Society. The governor of Florida, I believe, will be there. DeSantis, the former vice president, Mike Pence will be there. It's closed to the press. And when I saw this, I thought, this is not appropriate, whether or not you're a conservative justice or a liberal justice. And I'm wondering if I can get your take on, is this something that we always saw, we just didn't pay as much attention to it? Is it the fact that he's speaking with Republican politicians? Is that it's close to the press? Or is it much ado about being enraged on social media? Well, I think as a, just with my kind of reporter's hat on, we always want officials to be speaking in public with the press present, just as a institutional good practice. And the Supreme Court over the years, and this is not anything new, is very bad at letting us know, the members of the press, including the people who cover the court all the time, uh, when and where the justices might be appearing in, in public, quote unquote, in public. And it's a constant fight over access. And also, you know, even if it is public, uh, you know, whether you can record it, whether you can take notes, whether there's going to be a video live stream, which, you know, these days is very easy to do. A lot of the time uh, there isn't, even if it is a public event. So, you know, for the people like me who cover the court, you know, we can't travel over the country following justices around like reporters do with the president. So, you know, 
it's just not feasible or resources wise for us to be able to be at every event that they do and and is it made even harder by the fact we don't even know half the time when they're speaking or where they're speaking and this time of year especially it's the break in the court uh the midwinter break where they're not hearing arguments so the, the justices have kind of spread all over the place and uh unless you're sort of keeping a really close eye on what's going on you don't know where they're appealing and so the, that's one question. And the other question is, you know, appearing in front of different types of groups and whether that's a good idea or not. And that's sort of a different question, which people have different views on. And, uh, you know, I think Gorsuch is supposed to be speaking at this event. He's not speaking at the same time as the politicians. He's speaking about something else. He, usually when the justices appear in public, they don't really say anything that interesting. <laughs> but uh, you'd think that would be an argument in favor of having it open to the press uh, rather than closing it. And sometimes, you know, when you close things to the press, it, it sort of makes it look worse than it actually is, which is, uh, you know, why I would suggest that uh, it's better to have them open to the press. Right. I mean, in a the branch of government that has the least transparency, it would seem like at least when they're outside of the courtroom, a little more transparency would help the public. And I hope that one day, even when they're in the courtroom, there's a little bit more transparency. For instance, now we have live audio as a result of COVID. Maybe one day we'll have live video too. But I do want to get to the other, obviously, big breaking news when it comes to the Supreme Court, which is there's a vacancy. We're recording this episode in the beginning of February, and Justice Breyer has indicated that he will, in fact, retire at the end of this term. And I'm wondering if you can first talk to us about how much do you think Justice Breyer's decision, if at all, was informed by the amount of pressure on him, this Breyer must retire chant? And how much do you think maybe it was informed by other factors, like looking at what happened to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what might happen to her legacy? Well, I think that the campaign to try and get him to leave the court which came you know, mostly from kind of progressive groups and some members of Congress, was clearly motivated by what happened with Justice Ginsburg. Uh, they didn't want to have a repeat where a liberal justice dies on the job and then is replaced by a Republican appointee and moves the court further to the right. But that doesn't mean that that's why Breyer retired. I mean, obviously, I don't know exactly why he chose now, but there's also just a, a sort of obvious logic to it, which is that he's 83 years old, he didn't retire last summer. Uh, there's an election, a midterm congressional election in November, which the Republicans could well win and regain control of the Senate. So there's a very narrow window for him to retire and be replaced by a Democratic appointee. And he's a Democratic appointee. He, <laughs> there's no reason why he wouldn't want to be replaced by one. So it seemed blatantly obvious that he was going to retire this year if he didn't retire last year. You know, I, I was 100% expecting it. And the fact that the reaction to it has been, I, I would say, fairly muted compared with some of the recent vacancies we've had on the court from all sides suggests that it's something that everyone was expecting and was already kind of ready for. It always makes me laugh a little bit when justices who have spent their entire career saying the court is not political, I don't make decisions for political purposes, clearly time their retirement for political purposes because they live in the real world and they know that who is going to pick their replacement and who's going to vote on that replacement matters. And that brings us to the next thing I want to talk about, which is 
Could you tell us a little bit about who you think maybe the top two or three contenders are? In my mind, you know, at the top of everybody's list, D.C. Court of Appeals Judge Kentanji Brown-Jackson, California Supreme Court Judge Leandra Kruger, and then um, Judge Michelle Childs in South Carolina, who's now being supported very vocally by Senator Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, um, who is herself nominated to the Court of Appeals, but may now jump the Court of Appeals and go straight to the highest Court of Appeals in the land, the Supreme Court. Am I missing one of them? And do you have a sense of if there's maybe a front runner in the group? Well, it seems at the moment that, you know, the White House is sort of claiming that, you know, they have this big list of people that they're considering that could run to like a dozen or more, which is partly a way to show that President Biden has said he wants to pick a black woman that they want to show that there's a broad bench of black women who are qualified that they can pick from, which is certainly the case. But also, you know, within that, there's clearly this kind of the sort of real list of people who are actually probably more likely to be seriously in consideration. And in that sense, the three you mentioned seem to be the ones that are top of the list for different reasons. And they all have their own kind of constituencies pushing for them, namely Child has sort of come out of nowhere, really, um, because of the backing she's getting from politicians in South Carolina. And someone who's a district court judge isn't normally automatically considered as a front runner for the Supreme Court. But she has a lot of strong support, including from uh, Congressman Clyburn, who has had had a lot of influence over Biden's election win because uh, he gave his support to Biden during the South Carolina primary, which kick-started Biden's whole run to the nomination. So that's sort of where she's coming from, although she's already getting some pushback from the left that doesn't like the fact that she used to work in private practice representing employers in, in uh, discrimination cases and things like that. And she's also a bit older than the other two. She's 55, and uh, which is, you know, these days is kind of old for a Supreme Court nominee. And then Leandra Kruger is sort of the darling of the Supreme Court Kind of elite lawyers, and it's unclear to me how much of a sway the Supreme Court bar has in the White House, uh, because it's not really a political constituency, but it's more of a constituency of sort of the elite, kind of whispering in people's ears and telling them that she's the smartest and the best, and she can be like Elena Kagan on the Supreme Court, and she's you know respected by conservative and liberals. But she's also getting a little bit of pushback from the left because she's maybe seen as being a little too moderate uh, on some issues, you know, and people are looking closely at some of her votes on the California Supreme Court. And then that leaves Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was Biden's first appeals court nominee and was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit last year pretty easily uh, with some Republican support. And is sort of someone who has a a, a sort of varied background because she worked for a while as a public defender. She's kind of an expert on criminal justice issues, sentencing especially. And, uh, you know, she seems to be the one who, not necessarily that the progressive wing of the Democrats kind of love because they have some other candidates that they like as well. But if they had to choose between one of those three, they would pick her. And so far during the Biden administration, you know, they have been picking a lot of judicial candidates that the left really likes. So if they're sort of consistent with what they've been doing before, it seems like Jackson is maybe kind of out in front. But, uh, you know, 
that's sort of speculation. I think we'll see more in the coming weeks as the people are interviewed and things like that to find out which way the White House is going. It always strikes me that maybe we don't realize how much a new addition to the Supreme Court or or vacancy matters to their work in the sense that this is a nine-person office in some ways. Obviously, there are law clerks, there are judicial assistants, there are other people, but it's for long periods of time, the same nine or the same eight, uh, really for huge stretches, deciding, I think, very consequential issues. And I think there's this perception that, well, it's just going to be a liberal jurist for a liberal jurist, so what difference will it make? But as you know from covering the court, they all have different personalities. And so the first question on that that I have is really, does this seem to be a court that is getting along about the same as they typically do? Do you think COVID has changed things? Do they seem collegial? There was this large kerfuffle where Justice Gorsuch didn't wear a mask. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is at higher risk for COVID, had to participate remotely. And then they had to put out this rare joint statement saying we're warm colleagues, which of course doesn't answer the question of why isn't Justice Gorsuch wearing a mask when he's next to somebody who's higher risk. All of which is to say, do you have a sense of how this court is getting along as compared to other courts? I mean, I think that's always hard to say because the justices always, you know, when they make their public statements, they're always going on about how they love each other and it's all, you know, joy and fun when they're hanging out together. But I don't necessarily think anyone ever believed that anyway, um, even before the recent changes to the court. And I think there's some history showing that tensions can run high at certain times because of the cases they're hearing. But then they have a big long summer break and then they come back and everyone's kind of cooled off a bit and can get on together again. But the, um, you know, and I think, yeah, the COVID thing might have played a role because, you know, I think we've all experienced, you know, in the last couple of years when you're working from home or remotely, you know, sometimes some of your relationships with people in the office can sort of fray or become more distant. And I can't imagine why that would be any different with them. And, um, there's definitely the case now, though, where the liberal justices, because they are so weak in terms of their voting power, that might change that dynamic a little bit, because in the past, it was always in everyone's interest to kind of pretend that they were getting on, because, you know, they might always get have a chance of getting Kennedy's vote and a 5-4 ruling, um, you know, going the other way. But now those chances are few and far between. So it's... Um, you know, I don't know if that changes the individual dynamics or not, but, you know, and at the end of the day, it comes down to whether they get on as individuals, which is, you know, kind of hard to tell. Really hard to tell. And you're right. There are always these statements were the warmest of colleagues. And then behind the scenes, you have absolutely no idea what's going on. And certainly there are reports that there were times when the justices truly couldn't stand each other and basically almost couldn't be in the same room. I think the chief justice, while he might not be the swing justice anymore, um, is really trying to hold on to the at least the idea that they are collegial. And so we'll see how that plays out in some of these bigger cases. And so before we end the interview, I do want to talk about some of these big issues and cases that you're talking about. We mentioned abortion, affirmative rights, gun rights, religious rights. 
I think top of everybody's mind is abortion. And we know that there have been two abortion cases that the court has considered this term. There's the Texas law where they really just have considered a separate issue of who can sue and be sued. But based on my view of the court's cavalier attitude towards that law, I think we know where they're going in the Mississippi case, which is the challenge to the law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy that would go directly against the court's precedent in Roe and Casey. And my view, Lawrence, is you don't take the case in Mississippi and you don't treat the law in Texas the way they did unless they're prepared to overturn Roe. And I think the only question is, do they have that sentence that says, we are overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Or do they say it's still the law of the land, but it's just much, much narrower than you expected? If you can say, is that about where having listened to oral arguments, read the briefs, is that about where you think the justices are going? Or is there a door number three that maybe a lot of us aren't thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think the big takeaway after the oral argument um, was, is there even a second option, uh, let alone a first option? Yeah. First option being, you know, overturning Roe. Because the second option was raised by the second option being not exactly a compromise, but stopping short of overturning Roe, kind of curbing abortion rights by allowing states to ban abortion earlier than viability, but not saying that there's no right to an abortion period. And the Chief Justice kind of raised that in the oral argument, but they didn't seem to really get any traction. So the question is whether between the oral argument, which was in December, and you know when the ruling comes out in June, whether the difficulty of deciding this case leads to the Chief Justice you know, managing to win over some of his colleagues and you know, coming up with a compromise. Uh, well, I keep on saying compromise is not really a compromise, but a ruling that in some ways would actually reflect you know, what some opinion polls show about you know, the American people's actual views on abortion once you actually ask them about it carefully, which is that you know, a lot of people think that there should be a right to an abortion, but that states should be able to ban it earlier. And of course, the big problem with a ruling like that from the right, aside from the fact that they want to get rid of abortion entirely, is that their whole complaint about Roe versus Wade was that the court was kind of inventing this legal principle out of nowhere. And the court in this case would be doing exactly the same thing if they just allow states to ban abortion earlier, but without getting rid of Roe altogether. So that's what they're wrestling with behind the scenes, I guess. And I think most of us who saw the argument and all the reporters who covered it, you know, you can look at their stories, think that the court's leaning towards definitely upholding this 15-week ban. That's the bottom line. Like the headline, or at least a headline that will come out when the ruling drops, is going to be the first headline is, does the Supreme Court uphold this law? Because that's what the case is about. If they uphold the law, a 15-week ban, in doing so, they're taking at least a huge chunk out of Roe, if not overturning it altogether. And that's like the second headline, which is what happened to Roe. But regardless of what happens to Roe, it's a massive change in the law if they uphold this Mississippi statute. And that will have huge repercussions. I think those repercussions, I mean, people may or may not realize for women, there will really be living in two different Americas, depending on whether or not they live in a red state or a blue state. They will have very, very different experiences if a court does, in fact, overturn Roe, either you know explicitly or implicitly. And one thing that 
maybe hasn't been covered enough that I wanted to ask you about about that decision is if the court upholds Mississippi's law, which I listen to oral arguments and I can't see any other way around that, do you think that that decision will affect their other views on the strength of precedent? Meaning, is this just about abortion or are there other situations where you think now the court's saying, look, we've got a conservative six to three majority and we're going to take this out for a spin. You know, you only live once. We might not have this again. And so this idea of stare decisis that we have to respect precedent is something that we're not going to be as focused on. I mean, the court just took, and this was going to be my next question, a big affirmative action case. I don't know why you take that case, frankly, unless you want to overturn um, fairly recent precedent saying that race can be one factor that higher education institutions of higher education consider when it comes to admission, which all boils down to, is this now a trend of we've got our six to three conservative majority and we're going to use it and basically stare decisis be damned? Or do we think maybe it's just about abortion because that is such an important issue? Yeah. I mean, the thing about precedent is kind of funny because, you know, in Supreme Court confirmation hearings, when the nominees are questioned about precedent, it's kind of code for abortion for many, many years. And so there's always this sort of a focus on precedent as a code word for abortion. But what happens when abortion is already off the table and all this discussion about precedent, like, was it just about abortion or was it also about other things? So then you get to what you were just saying, which is this 6-3 court so far seems pretty enthusiastic to take up these really prickly issues, including affirmative action, guns and abortion, and there may be other things as well, that long-held goals of conservative legal scholars wanting to overturn precedent, you know, that's all on the table now, and they can at least test it to see if they got five votes. And in some cases, they probably will. But then how far do you go? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And even in relation to the right to privacy, you know, and other rights that based on the same sort of reasoning as Roe v. Wade, like, does that bring into question, as was raised at the oral argument, does it bring into question same-sex marriage? Does it bring into question the right to contraception and that type of stuff? And we don't know the answer to that yet. Right. I mean, this is a only time will tell when it comes to how far this court is willing to go. And frankly, I think how much maybe Chief Justice John Roberts can try and get to the same place that his conservative colleagues want to get to, but get there more slowly. I mean, that's my take on where this so-called division might be in the conservative wing, is that Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't necessarily disagree with the end point. He just wants to get there a little bit more slowly. So the country definitely, you know, still thinks of them as judges. He and other justices, they all have their own interests. And so the fact that you may be a vote to do A or B doesn't necessarily mean that you're so enthusiastic to do C if it's not something that you particularly care about. Is there one person on the court who you see, like, this is the person who might become a master deal maker? Or is there, I know there's a lot of chatter about alliances on the court, and maybe the court is really 333, which I don't see. But do you see some sort of strange bedfellows, maybe alliance happening? Or do you see this really being Chief Justice John Roberts trying to um, kind of hold 
his conservative majority back and maybe move in a little bit more of an incremental way? Are there kind of weird alliances or I should say strange alliances that we should be on the lookout for here? Yeah, I mean, I think it varies on the on the subject matter. I think, you know, on these kind of big divisive social issue kind of cases, then it's more what you were saying with the chief justice kind of trying to maybe broker something. And maybe in some cases, Justice Kavanaugh might be on board for that or maybe even Justice Barrett. And that's where this sort of 333 idea comes from. And, you know, we have seen that maybe a couple of times so far. But, you know, it varies from case to case. And there are these kind of discrete issues where you do get these interesting alliances. For example, Justice Gorsuch siding with the liberal justices in expanding tribal authority in Oklahoma was a massive surprise. That was a 5-4 decision. And the court just recently turned away requests by Oklahoma trying to overturn that ruling based on the fact that Barrett has now come on the court and replaced Ginsburg. And that was a big surprise of a ruling that got a lot of criticism from the right, as was the ruling that expanded LGBT workplace protections, which saw Gorsuch and Roberts joining the Liberals, uh, which is not the kind of lineup you'd expect that often. So, you know, there are these kind of, you know, odd kind of bedfellow kind of cases that come up, but I think it doesn't really affect the overall trajectory because when it comes down to it, the 6-3 majority has the firepower to get what they want if they're all in agreement. And, you know, I think we see that quite a lot on these um, so-called shadow docket cases that come uh, at all times uh, these days. Yes. Uh, which are the emergency applications uh, people bring to the court. They get decided summarily without any oral argument or anything like that. And, you know, a lot of those cases people don't really pay much attention to. But, you know, you get splits all the time on those things. And the liberals, you know, they need, Well, if they want to grant an application, they need five votes. And, you know, that's not so easy to get. We could do a whole separate episode on the shadow docket, the emergency docket, the rocket docket, whatever we want to call it. But I want to end with something you just mentioned before, which is that there is this conservative six to three majority. And so maybe there are these alliances in certain cases here and there, but the overall trajectory, I think we know where the court's going. And that brings up, I think, for a lot of people, the question of, well, is there anything to do about that? Conservatives are thrilled and liberals and progressives are not. And I'm sure you've followed, there's a lot of proposals to reform the court. The Biden commission just came out with all of these assessments of the different proposals, you know, the kind of biggest ones being term limits or expand the court, rotating terms, and then some things that I see more around the edges, like ethical codes that are mandatory on the Supreme Court, mandatorily applied to the Supreme Court. It just in general, Lawrence, I'm wondering, do you see any reform happening? I don't. I don't see any movement here, even if the court explicitly overturns Roe, even if the court, I think, explicitly expand Second Amendment rights, lots of different issues where the public polling might be different from the court's decision. I don't see movement on these reforms, but I'm wondering if you have a separate take from your vantage point. Not really. I think you can see a sort of analogy with uh, voting rights reform in the Congress, which is that, you know, there are lots of kind of nonpartisan people who think that there are easily decisions that can be made to improve voting rights that aren't aimed at like helping one party or the other, 
But because the Democrats support it and the Republicans don't, it becomes a partisan issue. And the motivations, you know, for uh, any political party when they're dealing with someone like that is that, you know, they want to win elections. And it's kind of the same with the Supreme Court reform stuff, which is there are various reforms that have been, you know, people have been suggesting for years uh, about, you know, whether it's the ethics stuff or term limits that, you know, people who are not partisans would think, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, a sensible idea. You know, like term limits is a sensible idea because when the founders first came up with lifetime appointments, people weren't living until they're like 85 or 90. And, you know, why do we have these Supreme Court justices who are completely out of touch you know, on the court for decades? But the fact is, it's now being viewed through the lens of, well, this is just Democrats who have lost control of the court and want to gain it back. And term limits are therefore seen by partisans or people on the right as being part of the same package of reforms that would also include packing the court by increasing the number of justices. The fact is that, yeah, nothing will probably happen. But at the same time, you know, things can change quickly on the court. Like, we've already seen that when... Justice Ginsburg died and was replaced by Barrett. I mean, the next 10 years, the court could change radically again. You never know when, you know, we saw in 2016 when Justice Scalia died unexpectedly. You know, I mean, it's a sort of unpleasant thing to think about, but the fact is they're lifetime appointments and therefore one of the ways in which a vacancy is created is if someone dies and, uh, you know, that does happen. Right. I was... uh not joking, but I was having a conversation with my class that so much of this comes down to actuarial tables. And one of my students said, I was trained as an actuarial and he actually, you know, provided some interesting information. And, and that really, I think brings us to what we were talking about before, which is when president Biden is thinking of who to nominate, I think somebody who's 55, 56, that's almost seen as old now because we don't have term limits. We don't have rotating terms and you want to make sure that somebody who can be there for decades. See, for example, Justice Thomas, who I don't think is close to retirement and has been on the court for decades. And I think his influence is is only growing. That's true. I mean, I was just looking at the ages of the justices and, um, you know, the chief justice is only 67. You know, he's actually younger than Justice Sotomayor, even though he was appointed before her. Justice Thomas is not that old because he was so young when he was appointed. He's only a couple of years older than Justice Alito, who was appointed, you know, 16 years later. So, um, you know, that does become an issue. I don't think a lot of Democrats or people on the left want Biden to nominate a justice who will not be the youngest person on the court. And actually, most of the people they're talking about wouldn't be the youngest person on the court because Justice Barrett only just turned 50. So um, Leandra Kruger is actually the youngest of those. Yeah candidates at 45 and so it's kind of random it's rolling the dice no one knows how long someone's going to be on the court when they get appointed but um you know obviously if someone's younger then they're more likely to be on the court for longer it's a strange business that one of the main things that you look to when you're thinking about who to nominate for the court is uh, their age but of course um that makes sense because again federal judges are federal judges for life because we want them to be separate from politics we don't want them to be thinking about the next election or what's popular and i suspect that that is how it will stay for quite a while so we covered a lot of ground here Lawrence Hurley of Reuters Thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me. You can find Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Hurley. That's L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. 
H-U-R-L-E-Y. I follow him to get a lot of my breaking Supreme Court news. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. We want to thank all of our listeners. I think everybody knows I love talking about all things Supreme Court. It's a pivotal time for the court, and we're really lucky to have one of the top Supreme Court reporters in the country be able to talk about that with us. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. We wish everybody a great day. Thank you.